This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Luoma, GreenKRI.com. Journey to the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter 11 A Guide Found to the Center of the Earth. In the evening I took a short walk on the beach, and returned at night to my plank-bed, where I slept soundly all night. When I awoke I heard my uncle talking at a great rate in the next room. I immediately dressed and joined him. He was conversing in the Danish language with a tall man of robust build. This fine fellow must have been possessed of great strength. His eyes, set in a large and ingenuous face, seemed to me very intelligent. They were of a dreamy sea-blue. Long hair, which would have been called red even in England, fell in long meshes upon his broad shoulders. The movements of this native were lithe and supple, but he made little use of his arms in speaking, like a man who knew nothing or cared nothing about the language of gestures. His whole appearance bespoke perfect calmness and self-possession, not indolence but tranquillity. It was felt at once that he would be beholden to nobody, that he worked for his own convenience, and that nothing in this world could astonish or disturb this philosophic calmness. I caught the shades of this Icelandish character by the way in which he listened to the impassioned flow of words which fell from the professor. He stood with arms crossed, perfectly unmoved by my uncle's incessant gesticulations. A negative was expressed by a slow movement of the head from left to right, an affirmative by a slight bend, so slight that his long hair scarcely moved. He carried economy of motion even to parsimony. Certainly I should never have dreamt in looking at this man that he was a hunter. He did not look likely to frighten his game, nor did he seem as if he would even get near it. But the mystery was explained when Mr. Fridrikson informed me that this tranquil personage was only a hunter of the eider-duck, whose under-plumage constitutes the chief wealth of the island. This is the celebrated eider-down, and it requires no great rapidity of movement to get it. Early in summer the female, a very pretty bird, goes to build her nest among the rocks of the fjords with which the coast is fringed. After building the nest she feathers it with down plucked from her own breast. Immediately the hunter, or rather the trader, comes and robs the nest, and the female recommences her work. This goes on as long as she has any down left. When she has stripped herself bare, the male takes his turn to pluck himself. But as the coarse and hard plumage of the male has no commercial value, the hunter does not take the trouble to rob the nest of this. The female, therefore, lays her eggs in the spoils of her mate, the young are hatched, and next year the harvest begins again. Now, as the eater duck does not select steep cliffs for her nest, but rather the smooth terraced rocks which slope to the sea, the Icelandic hunter might exercise his calling without any inconvenient exertion. He was a farmer who was not obliged either to sow or reap his harvest, but merely to gather it in. This grave, phlegmatic, and silent individual was called Hans Bjelk, and he came recommended by Mr. Fridrikson. He was our future guide. His manners were a singular contrast with my uncle's. Nevertheless, they soon came to understand each other. Neither looked at the amount of the payment. The one was ready to accept whatever was offered, the other was ready to give whatever was demanded. Never was bargain more readily concluded. 
the result of the treaty was that Hans engaged on his part to conduct us to the village of Stapi, on the south shore of the Snaefell Peninsula, at the very foot of the volcano. By land this would be about twenty-two miles, to be done, said my uncle, in two days. But when he learnt that the Danish mile was twenty-four thousand feet long, he was obliged to modify his calculations and allow seven or eight days for the march. Four horses were to be placed at our disposal, two to carry him and me, two for the baggage. Hans, as was his custom, would go on foot. He knew all that part of the coast perfectly, and promised to take us the shortest way. His engagement was not to terminate with our arrival at Stapi. He was to continue in my uncle's service for the whole period of his scientific researches, for the remuneration of three Ricksdales a week, about twelve shillings, but it was an express article of the covenant that his wages should be counted out to him every Saturday at six o'clock in the evening, which according to him was one indispensable part of the engagement. The start was fixed for the 16th of June. My uncle wanted to pay the hunter a portion in advance, but he refused with one word. After, said he, after, said the professor for my edification. The treaty concluded. Hans silently withdrew. A famous fellow, cried my uncle, but he little thinks of the marvellous part he has to play in the future. So he is to go with us as far as, as far as the centre of the earth, Axel. Forty-eight hours were left before our departure. To my great regret I had to employ them in preparations, for all our ingenuity was required to pack every article to the best advantage. Instruments here, arms there, tools in this package, provisions in that, four sets of packages in all. The instruments were, number one, an Eigel centigrade thermometer graduated up to 150 degrees, 302 degrees Fahrenheit, which seemed to me too much or too little, too much if the internal heat was to rise so high, for in this case we should be baked, not enough to measure the temperature of springs or any matter in a state of fusion. Number two, an aneroid barometer, to indicate extreme pressures of the atmosphere. An ordinary barometer would not have answered the purpose, as the pressure would increase during our descent to a point which the mercurial barometer would not register. Begin note. In Mr. Verne's book a manometer is the instrument used, of which very little is known. In a complete list of philosophical instruments the translator cannot find the name. As he is assured by a first-rate instrument maker, Chadburn of Liverpool, that an aneroid can be constructed to measure any depth, he has thought it best to furnish the adventurous professor with this more familiar instrument. The manometer is generally known as a pressure gauge. End note. Number three, a chronometer, made by Boissonnas, June of Geneva, accurately set to the meridian of Hamburg. Number four, two compasses, these a common compass and a dipping needle. Number five, a night glass. Number six, two of Ruhmkorff's apparatus, which by means of an electric current supplied a safe and handy portable light. Begin note. Ruhmkorff's apparatus consists of a Bunsen pile worked with bichromate of potash, which makes no smell. An induction coil carries the electricity generated by the pile into communication with a lantern of peculiar construction. In this lantern there is a spiral glass tube from which the air has been excluded, and in which remains only a residuum of carbonic acid or of nitrogen. 
When the apparatus is put in action, this gas becomes luminous, producing a white steady light. The pile and coil are placed in a leathern bag, which the traveller carries over his shoulders. The lantern outside of the bag throws sufficient light into deep darkness. It enables one to venture without fear of explosions into the midst of the most inflammable gases, and is not extinguished even in the deepest waters. Mr. Rumkorf is a learned and most ingenious man of science. His great discovery is his induction coil, which produces a powerful stream of electricity. He obtained, in 1864, the quinquennial prize of 50,000 franc reserved by the French government for the most ingenious application of electricity. End note. The arms consisted of Purdy's rifles and two brace of pistols. But what did we want arms for? We had neither savages nor wild beasts to fear, I supposed. But my uncle seemed to believe in his arsenal as in his instruments, and more especially in a considerable quantity of gun-cotton, which is unaffected by moisture, and the explosive force of which exceeds that of gunpowder. The tools comprised two pickaxes, two spades, a silk rope-ladder, three iron-tipped sticks, a hatchet, a hammer, a dozen wedges and iron spikes, and a long knotted rope. Now this was a large load, for the ladder was three hundred feet long. And there were provisions, too. This was not a large parcel, but it was comforting to know that of essence of beef and biscuits there were six months' consumption. Spirits were the only liquid, and of water we took none. But we had flasks, and my uncle depended on springs from which to fill them. Whatever objections I hazarded as to their quality, temperature, and even absence, remained ineffectual. To complete the exact inventory of all our travelling accompaniments, I must not forget a pocket-medicine chest, containing blunt scissors, splints for broken limbs, a piece of tape of unbleached linen, bandages and compresses, lint, a lancet for bleeding, all dreadful articles to take with one. Then there was a row of phials containing dextrin, alcoholic ether, liquid acetate of lead, vinegar, and ammonia drugs which afforded me no comfort. Finally, all the articles needful to supply Rumkorf's apparatus. My uncle did not forget a supply of tobacco, coarse-grained powder, and amadou, nor a leathern belt in which he carried a sufficient quantity of gold, silver, and paper money. Six pairs of boots and shoes made waterproof with a composition of India rubber, and naphtha were packed amongst the tools. "'Clothed, shod, and equipped like this,' said my uncle, "'there is no telling how far we may go.' The fourteenth was wholly spent in arranging all our different articles. In the evening we dined with Baron Tramps, the mayor of Rejkivik, and Dr. Hjaltelin, the first medical man of the place, being of the party. Mr. Fredrickson was not there. I learned afterwards that he and the governor disagreed upon some question of administration, and did not speak to each other. I therefore knew not a single word of all that was said at this semi-official dinner, but I could not help noticing that my uncle talked the whole time. On the fifteenth our preparations were all made. Our host gave the professor very great pleasure by presenting him with a map of Iceland far more complete than that of Henderson. It was the map of Mr. Olaf Nicholas Olsen, in the proportion of one to four hundred and eighty thousand of the actual size of the island, and published by the Icelandic Literary Society. It was a precious document for a mineralogist. Our last evening was spent in intimate conversation with Mr. Fredrickson, with whom I felt the liveliest sympathy. 
Then, after the talk, succeeded, for me, at any rate, a disturbed and restless night. At five in the morning I was awoke by the neighing and pawing of four horses under my window. I dressed hastily and came down into the street. Hans was finishing our packing almost as it were without moving a limb, and yet he did his work cleverly. My uncle made more noise than execution, and the guide seemed to pay very little attention to his energetic directions. At six o'clock our preparations were over. Mr. Fridrickson shook hands with us. My uncle thanked him heartily for his extreme kindness. I constructed a few fine Latin sentences to express my cordial farewell. Then we bestrode our steeds, and with his last adieu, Mr. Fridrickson treated me to a line of Virgil eminently applicable to such uncertain wanderers as we were likely to be. Et quacumque viam dedent fortuna sequamur. Therever fortune clears away, thither our ready footsteps stray. End of chapter 11